City Council voted to remove the mask mandate yesterday, but begrudgingly, saying they did it because the province told them they had to. We know we're in an energy crisis. How did we get here, and how do we get out of it? We'll talk with Dave Yeager, an energy policy analyst. And the future of broadcasting in Canada is at stake. That's the opinion of Kevin Desjardins, the president of Canadian Association of Broadcasters. All right, a lot of reaction on the text line already, and we'll talk about this uh, for the rest of the hour. It's about the mask mandate in Edmonton specifically, but the, the, the conversation is much broader than that. It goes beyond just that. Of course, we're talking about the province saying, hey, listen, we're going to take away your ability to make decisions around a very specific and narrow scope. But nonetheless, that was the decision. As I said, I had a chance to speak with Edmonton Mayor Amarjeet Sohi just before we went to air this morning. Mayor Amarjeet Sohi joins us now. And uh, uh, Mayor Sohi, let's just start with uh, the decision that was made last night. You voted last night to remove the mask mandate. I think a little begrudgingly, though. Um, why did you decide to cast your ballot to remove the mask mandate in the city of Edmonton? We know, as you know, province uh, brought forward... Uh, the changes to the Municipal Government Act yesterday, basically prohibiting municipalities from having any health regulations in place related to COVID and the spread of the virus. So uh, we had no choice uh, other than to uh, to repeal the bylaw. That's uh, in in my mind. Uh, uh, you know, it's uh, it is it's, it's ironic, uh, Shay, that. Uh, uh, in the past, during the middle of the pandemic, uh, our provincial government encouraged, actually expected municipalities to implement masking bylaw because they were, uh, you know, lacking the courage to implement their own because of the pressure from uh, from their uh, from the public, right, or uh, a certain segment of the public. So they asked us to do so. We done done it for two years. Our uh, mask bylaw really worked. It helped. Uh, uh, protected Edmontonians uh, uh, during a time when it needed protection, but uh, continuing with the mask bylaw by would have been uh, ineffective because province would have uh, repealed it anyways in a couple of days. So, just so I'm clear, if we remove the provincial overreach, as you call it, or whatever the case may be, if the province didn't get involved with the uh, amendment to the uh, MGA, you would have voted to keep the mandate in place? So I have uh, I have taken uh, that our province is moving too fast, too quick on uh, lift, lifting restrictions. When you look at other provinces, they have taken a gradual approach, and some will start lifting restrictions in uh, end of March or early April. So I am of the view, based on uh, talking to uh, some of the doctors and health professionals, that we should have taken a gradual approach. So I would have. Uh, uh, ideally, uh, uh, kept the bylaw in place for another month or so to uh, to ensure that we are absolutely out of the pandemic. Because for the past two years, Edmontonians have made significant sacrifices to uh, uh, to control the spread, and they have suffered and uh, and gotten ill and uh, and lost family members. So, uh, uh, you know, and just moving gradually gives a little bit more certainty that uh, uh, we are being very cautious and prudent about it. So that's the approach I would have taken. So what does that say about the mayor of Calgary or council in Medicine Hat or Lethbridge or Fort McMurray or Red Deer? Are they all wrong? Have they all made the wrong choice here? Do you know something they don't know? You know, every municipality have their own circumstances uh, to uh, to consider. 
and every municipality brought in their bylaws if they had based on their local realities because that's exactly what province expected us to do uh, earlier on. Uh, so we uh, put in our bylaw with two conditions in place. One was that once the province removes the restrict its own uh, masking bylaw, the second one was the number of cases going below 100 per 100,000 population. So the second criteria has not been met. So that's why it would have been more prudent to keep the uh, uh, the, the uh, protections in place for a little bit longer. I know people are tired. I am tired. Everyone is uh, want to put COVID behind us. But, uh, you know, let's be a little more, uh, what we, I think I would have preferred to be a little bit more cautious uh, uh, for the next couple of weeks or months uh, before, uh, before really, really looking at uh, uh, having understanding that this is really behind us now. And you mentioned the testing criteria as being the one that hasn't been met, but we all know the testing, uh, what's going on in our province right now, we're, we're, it's, a, it's a shot in the dark at best. We really don't I know. know, I right? know. So you can't... Well, that's another consideration that we had to look at now, that... Uh, the data uh, uh, on uh, on number of cases is not really reliable anymore, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, and that's one of the considerations that we actually looked at. That's what uh, our administration actually advised us on too. Um, I'm just, you know, what? Not to hammer the point, but uh, business, city administration, social agencies, Edmontonians. You put a survey up for a week. Sixty-eight percent of Edmontonians said the bylaw needs to go. Um, the, the question I come back to is, you know, the division, the problems. Business say they don't want it. They don't want to have to deal with it. Administration doesn't want to deal with it. The public doesn't want to deal with it. At this point, when you take, I mean, Hawaii announced this morning they're lifting their mask mandate in two weeks. That's the last one in the United States. Why does Edmonton need to be the outlier here? Is there something um, different about Edmonton, or is it just uh, being overly cautious? Uh, I don't think we are the outlier. Uh, look at every other major city in Canada, uh, they have some form of protection in place uh, in other provinces, right? They are taking a more gradual approach. Uh, as far as the survey is concerned, I, it's very important to understand that uh, uh, who are the most vulnerable Edmontonians? The most vulnerable Edmontonians are the ones who don't have uh, the ability to get vaccinated because of health reasons, uh, or they are not eligible uh, for that in the cases of uh, of children. So we have a we have a responsibility to make sure the most vulnerable Edmontonians are protected. So what are we going to do now that uh, the bylaw is repealed? We will continue to support vulnerable Edmontonians whichever way we can uh, that they they are looked after. So uh, you know it's, it's, the decision is made. Uh, uh, let's move forward together uh, uh, to continue to support each other whichever way we can. The the um, the motion that came after the motion to remove the mandate was to draft another mandate, which will then be sent to the province. Walk me through that. What would this new mandate um, be about? So. Uh, province in their legislation asked municipalities that if they want to bring in new legislation or bylaws, it has to go through the provincial approval. So that is what the uh, uh, what that request is about. But council would have to debate it. I did not support it. I think uh, 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 we need to uh, we need to move on yeah. uh, at the same time pro- providing protections. Uh, uh, but the challenge that we're facing, which is I, I'm trying to grapple with, uh, is on public transit. Uh, the 
repealing of the bylaw takes away our officers, uh, transit officers' ability to enforce uh, the, the transit uh, bylaw on public transit, which is still in place uh, under the provincial requirements. I think that's in an area that we need to explore a little bit further on how we can protect our uh, our transit users and bus drivers who transport them. I think, Mayor Sohi, the bigger issue here for all Albertans is the fact that the province has taken this step. Uh, I know Kathy Heron with the Municipalities Association of Alberta has concerns about it. We spoke with Barry Morishita of the Alberta Party who has some concerns about it. Um, just why do you think the province felt this step was necessary? Clearly, something is broken between city administration and the province and the relationship that they share. I think the fundamental gap that is just uh, is that uh, we are not privy to the information on which province makes decisions. So they never share any data with us. They never consult with us. They give us ultimatums. On this, actually, we, we got a call, um, I think, half an hour before telling us what the province is going to do. So they never consult with us. I think a better approach would be to sit down with administration of both governments uh, to share, have, have proper data and a proper sharing of information so that we can align our decisions. And that doesn't happen. And that does cause inconsistencies. That does cause uh, different decisions being made by different governments because we're not uh, privy to the same information. Do you think um, the relationship can be repaired? Is that something that you think is important? It seems to me like this um, kind of big footing from the province clearly stems from the fact that they don't feel they can work with city council in Edmonton. You know, ever since I got elected, Shay, I have put my best foot forward to build a stronger relationship with the provincial government, uh, uh, and we will continue to do so. Uh, I continue to talk to ministers, and we will continue to reach to other ministers, because I believe in collaboration, I believe in working together, and we have a number of challenges that... Uh, uh, this provincial government has a responsibility to fulfill, but they haven't. You know, talk about health regulations. Province reminds us that all under, particularly under the bylaw, masking bylaw, they reminded us that health is a provincial responsibility. And I accept that fact. But they should also accept that fact that if health is provincial responsibility, then they need to step up to tackle houselessness in our city, because that is a health crisis. If they believe that health is their responsibility, then they should be supporting our city in tackling the opiate crisis. Two Edmontonians die every day because of the drug poisoning, and province has not stepped up. If they believe that health is their responsibility, not city's responsibility, we have a mental health crisis in our city. They have not stepped up. So I would really hope that uh, that this, uh, will allow us to have very clear conversation with the province if they believe that we should not be intervening and taking action on health-related matters, then they need to support Edmonton for our Edmontonians to heal, get better, and really uh, help our downtown and business districts and the Chinatown recover uh, economically because of those all those issues I talked about for houselessness, mental health, addictions crisis are holding our economy back. Um, Mayor Sohi, I appreciate your time this morning. Unfortunately, I am out of time, but uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to uh, joining again.
So what do you think? That's Mayor Amarjeet Sohi, Mayor of Edmonton, after they voted to remove the mask mandate. But as he openly admits, he didn't want to. Felt he had to. The province forced his hand. And that's the bigger issue for all of us here. The province felt they had to force the hand of Edmonton City Council to get this moved the way that it ended up moving. Um, of course, every other municipality in the province, some of them also a little begrudgingly, but they made the same step. Um, we've got a problem with the way that the provincial government interacts with municipal governments. Switching gears now and talking about the situation in Russia or Ukraine, I guess, and how it translates to, well, the entire world at this point, specifically around the price of oil, what that's doing to the price of gas. I mean, we covered the story pretty thoroughly yesterday. Um, Of course, the world is wrestling with the situation in Ukraine. And part of the struggle here, indeed, a very big part of the struggle is energy. Um, Russia is one of the world's leading producers of oil and gas. You know that. And a lot of Western nations, especially in Europe, are utterly reliant upon the oil and gas they produce in Russia. So to inflict real financial pain on Russia would mean inflicting real financial pain on themselves, which is the holdup and why it's not happening. U.S. did it. Canada did it. Sure. Really doesn't make that much difference. Uh, It's another story if the European Union was to try and take the same steps banning Russian imports. It's completely, completely different. Um, And that's the situation we find ourselves in. Everywhere on earth, we're now dealing with the soaring oil prices, soaring gas prices, record highs. There is no shortage of ideas on exactly how we get ourselves out of this mess and how we got ourselves into this mess. To talk about that, we have Dave Yeager joining us, an energy policy analyst, an oil and gas writer, and author of From Miracle to Menace, Alberta, A Carbon Story. Dave, thanks for joining us again. Nice to chat. Uh, good morning. You know, whenever we talk about this issue, and I've said going back long before this Russia thing, and I think you have too, when it comes to energy and the environment, we've got we've got the aspirational policy that we hear from the politicians, and we've got the reality on the ground, and they're not the same. And in the end, reality wins out. You have to come back to reality sooner or later, and maybe that's what's happening now. We all want to move away from oil and gas, but we haven't yet, and suddenly when it gets to a situation like this, we realize, like, oh boy, maybe we got ahead of ourselves. Well, there's no question the world was lulled into a false sense of security in the period from uh, 2009 to 2019. Uh, The Great the last economic recession of 08-09, everybody blames it on subprime mortgages, but actually the real problem was oil hit $145 a barrel in uh, 2008. The price of wheat went through the roof. The parallels to the then and now are very similar. And so so what happened in, uh, in, in 2019 uh, or 2009, excuse me, after the, the the financial crisis, government started what they called quantitative easing, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, put a lot of uh, liquidity into the economy, which gave more people more disposable income. But more importantly, the oil industry, oil industry, in, uh, oil industry in Canada and the U.S. started drilling. And between 2008 and 2020, North America put 10 million barrels of oil onto the market. 8 million came out of the shale oil in, uh, in the United States, and 2 million came out of the oil sands. And this righted the ship. What happened in 2015, oil prices collapsed. So we had this period where oil, energy was cheap, yep. oil was cheap, interest rates were low. Well, you know, what a great party. And, every, and we, so we got we get to talk about what we, not what we are doing, what we should doing. And there were lone voices all through this period uh, that talked about energy security and the international energy. And, and even after COVID, when oil went to, you know, almost to zero, everybody said, well, that's the end of oil sunset industry we don't need this anymore there were voices uh warning that um, that by 23 24 if the oil industry didn't go back to drilling uh that uh that we were going to have a shortfall global shortfall 
And then what happened is the Russia-Ukraine crisis actually just accelerated something that was in the cards anyway. And then the add in the fossil fuel divestment movement, elections won on there. How much can I? How much can I punish? Well, how quickly? So we we really bungled this. <laughs> and I, when I say we, it is it is really the Western world, the OECD countries. Uh, the, even OPEC was warning about oil. And uh, Russia was drilling. It's uh, it's a bizarre set of circumstances, but here we are. Yeah, and you know, you talk about the history of this and going back through history and where we are. There, there, there's no shortage of historical examples about basically, like you said, the very situation that we find ourselves in right now. I mean, this is sort of we get to a point where something like this happens, and it and it checks where we are. Except we get amnesia. <laughs> Go back to the 70s. <laughs> that was the first time in 1973 when OPEC, it, it, oil's always been geopolitical from a military point of view, like modern armies have been part of oil. But it became a geopolitical weapon against countries in 1973 with the OPEC embargo of the countries that supported Israel in the Arab-Israeli war. And that was the uh, United States and, uh, and the European countries. And then, and then we had a, her- a terrible, terrible time. And, I, and I, unfortunately, it portends to where we are now. The price of oil went up 10 times, uh, 1,000% from 1973 to 1979. And the reaction in the world, and we're seeing this today, was, was uh, runaway inflation, incredibly high interest rates. It was awful. And that problem was ultimately solved with demand destruction. The price went so high that uh, people couldn't afford to buy it anymore, and fuel-efficient cars, natural gas, nuclear power. Yeah. But more importantly, it, it went, uh, the OECD responded. The uh, America brought on the North Sea oil and the, you know, the Alaska pipeline. The, Europe brought on the, the, or sorry, the Alaska North Slope, and Europe brought on the North Sea. And even the federal government, Ottawa and Ontario, wrote checks for the Syncrude. And and we fixed it. We we added capacity and 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 and, and tempered demand, put in some alternate sources, and oil didn't move for 15 years. And same thing as 08. Like we've been through this before. Sure. Security supply, and then it was the West. It was the West that solved the problem. It wasn't OPEC. It wasn't Russia. It was it was uh, North America and Europe that solved the problem. And unfortunately, these are the uh, these are the nations or these are the jurisdictions that elected governments on anti-oil platforms. So the solution is in our hands. I wrote an extensive piece on this yesterday for EnergyNow.ca. If you want to go hunt for it, but I mean, you know, the solution is to go is to is to get back drilling. We're we're going to have to. Someone is going to have to admit we miscalculated, and they're going to have to put the next election or their political agenda ahead of what the world needs. And the, the one thing that we're not talking about, and, I, and you have to talk about it, is the price of food. And I saw this interview on BNN yesterday that uh, the price of fertilizer is up 300%. The, the 30% of the world's wheat comes from Ukraine, uh, Ukraine and uh, Russia. And Ukrainian farmers should be seeding or fighting for their lives. Right, the yeah. ports are blocked. I mean, this, is, this, is, this, is, this affects billions of people. And, and so I did this uh, radio interview last week and you know, a dedicated progressive climate uh, uh, you know, oil fossil fuel said, well, the real solution is Quebec exporting green hydrogen. Oh, come on. I mean, you know, <laughs> they, 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 need, they need oil, they need gas, and not just for heat, but for food. And so I, I just, I don't know when when the, the tall foreheads that tell everyone how to live their lives and tell us what to do are going to get a map of the world and, and see what, what's going on to 7.9 billion people, depending on what happens in Russia. This is bad, and I, I, I fear it could get worse if, 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 they, if they do what they have to do, which is further restrict Russian uh, oil exports. Then everything I just spoke about is going to get worse. I, I just, 
That's Lump the only option, Dave. That's, I think that's the only option other than, you know, military conflict, which thankfully everyone seems to want to avoid. The, the, the interesting part to me around all of this is, okay, I think, you know, whether or not they're going to come out and say, hey, we need to drill. That's what we need to do. We need to increase the supply. I don't know if they're actually going to take that step and come out and say it, but just look at what's happening right now. You've got literally, you've got American officials in Venezuela. They're having discussions with Iran and with Saudi Arabia. Why? Because they want them to increase the global oil supply. So they've made the emission that the way out of this is to increase global oil. Um, obviously, they they recognize it, but we still, it seems like it's happening almost behind the scenes. It's multifaceted in the sense that there's also what they've done to capital markets. You may recall that Mark Carney probably went to COP26 in November and came back with $130 trillion of commitments to not fund. The Canadian banks have done it. The institutional investors have done it. You know, what happened in the 70s was a lot of stripper production came on. Um, the little wells that were marginal became profitable again. They put a lot more oil on than anyone thought by getting everything going. We need money for that. Mm-hmm. And so denying the fossil fuel industry money has been a badge of honor for the for the loss of the wall. So capital remains constrained. A lot of companies are the bankers are worried about their balance sheets. There's a, there's a lot of factors. So there's really five players in my view that have to come together on this. It would be nice if the if the environmentalists would just take the rest of the year off, and if you could, and just let us fix a few things. And the people that are sending the money, you know, maybe send it to Ukraine instead. The federal government's got to change the channel. The two provinces that could help are Quebec and BC. BC has got a land claim issue in the Northeast that could be resolved. They make sure those pipelines get built. Quebec could just look around and say, "What have I done?" Uh, the um, and the oil and the capital markets have just got to say, "Well, wait a second here." Uh, I mean, the the whole concept of ESG investing is stakeholder capitalism. We're supposed to do the morally right thing. Well, the morally right thing is to is to get the world some energy and some food. And then in the end, if they, if they could get those things, the industry has the cash. The industry's got to go back to work. There's all kinds of reasons and all kinds of challenges, but I just wish we could raise the the level of discussion to, that everybody could agree on a, on a fact set yeah. uh, like the one I'm portraying today and agree to be this. This is a really serious global problem, and let's start thinking uh, with about real serious global solutions, not not posturing, and that's too bad. Um Dave, what do we do? I mean, we're in the glue now, today, uh, next week. Um, th- th- that's part of the problem, I think. Here. I, mean, I know the Premier's down there talking about Alberta oil, and uh, from all the analysts that I've read, yeah, I mean, we can increase production a little bit, maybe, in a while. Um, it doesn't happen quickly. So what do we do, you know, in the short term here? Are we just going to have to grin and, well, not grin, but grit our teeth and bear what's coming? I gritted my teeth about half an hour ago when I filled up uh, my car yeah, on yeah. test at a buck ninety three a liter. Holy cow! That's a li- outside of Europe. That's a lifetime record for me. No, we can start today. Uh, there are a lot of supply chain issues, and there's a lot of regulatory issues, and there's a lot of permitting issues. But we could start moving the needle. I'd say later this year. You know, Q four. Yeah, people yeah. can go to work. Uh, I'd say that they could put on what they could. They save there's pipeline constraints, but there's always crude by rail. So we could start firing up uh, the wells that are shut down. There's supply chain issues in the in the oil patch, but people say well, they can't get the labor. Well, they they have the cash. The industry is is long on cash at these prices. There's a price at which people will go back to work. <laughs> they could re- realign supply chains if if this became 
the issue I, I think it should be, and I think a lot of people that won't be listening to this show believe it should be, the people that are on fixed income to whom the, the rising price of energy and the price of, price of food is, is incredibly disruptive. And none of those people, we're not hearing from any of those people. Nobody is <laughs> going asking uh, the, uh, the average person is grumbling about the price of gasoline. And we, 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 we have it so lucky in Western Canada in yeah. some ways. Well, we're like Russia. we got food and energy, right? I mean, we're not going to run out of anything here. But no, you're boy, right. Oh it, boy, it may cost us a little bit more, but even if it costs us more, Dave, it's going to be much less than it's going to cost the rest of the country, which is the ironic thing. The cheapest natural gas in the world is right here, yeah. and we should be thankful for that. But the, the, the point is, is all the people that are talking about the future of civilization and the future of, of mankind... Uh, I would just ask you, please have a look around the, the world and say, how's mankind doing with the price of wheat, the highest it's been in 14 years? What, yeah. what does this mean? What does it mean when the winter, when the winter, uh, the summer crop season comes in and the price of fertilizer is three times what it was last year? What does that mean, uh, you know, when the grain stocks from last winter are down and, uh, and there's no replacement crops this year? What, is it, what does it look like in, in, in next fall and next winter? And, and I just wish people would, you know, maybe this will go away. Uh, maybe Russia will... Capitulate you know, overnight. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, geez, I heard this interview with Shea Gannon. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I said, boy, I am I ever a dummy? You know? I'm going to stand yeah, down. Yeah. yeah, I'll stand down. I'm going issue a blanket of policy and start seeing the reconstruction. No, but I mean, this is what I... If, I mean, and, but the point is, it's, 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 it's more likely to escalate... Than, yeah. or stay the same sure. than it is to go away. And and now they're talking about, the you know, Poland's a NATO country, and they're talking about some, we'll give them some old Russian jets. Yeah. Holy cow, we're all, the whole world's on tenderhooks here. We haven't even got to the worst case, and I won't even mention it, but it starts with Anne. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, yeah, let's, you know, let's hope that standard heads prevail. And even, uh, for example, even in the Middle East, uh, apparently the, the media reports I read is that, um, um, Biden's gone to Saudi Arabia, and they won't take his call. They're aligned with Saudi Arabia. they got their nose out of joint. The break in oil prices this morning apparently came from United Arab Emirates. They have some extra capacity, and they wanted to increase production uh, last summer. And they you know, they said, no, you'll have to. So there is some oil out there. So we got, is, yeah. we got some breathing room on oil this morning. But it's just absolutely nowhere near. The, the millions of barrels uh, that, that would be required to, to right the ship and, and, and do the proper thing, which is um, not support the Russian war effort by continuing to buy their oil and gas. That's the thing. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the conundrum. Uh, Dave, always uh, great chat. Appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much. Uh, boy, I can hardly wait till you phone me. We talk about something more pleasant. Yeah, me too. Me too. It'll happen. Thanks, Dave. Have, have a great day. Bye. You too. That is Dave Yeager, who is energy policy analyst, oil and gas writer, author of From Miracle to Menace, Alberta, A Carbon Story. All right. I got to do a couple of things before and after <laughs> this next segment, because I mentioned Bill C-11 and broadcasters and what they want to see the government do in terms of regulation. And already I'm getting the text. Oh, come on. Are you going to talk about how you guys get so much free money from the Trudeau government? You're bought. Yes. Yes. We're going to talk about it again in the interest of trying to save myself going through all the texts from people saying, yeah, you're bought and paid for. No, we're not. Okay, we've talked about this before on the air. You can Google this. We'll talk about it again. That $600 million you keep reading about on Facebook, 
no broadcast entity in Canada, okay, Chorus, CTV, City, you name it, they aren't even qualified for that, let alone don't want it, okay? We're not part of that. That's for print and digital. And we'll keep banging this drum, uh, and maybe sooner or later people will come to the understanding of how that whole thing works. Um, that's not part of this discussion, okay? This is a separate issue, and again, broadcast outlets are not part of that at all. Never have been, never will be. Drop it. Um, in the meantime, though, there are regulatory frameworks that are an issue to Canadian broadcasters, and we've talked about Bill C-11, and that is the Liberal government's attempts to regulate broadcasting in light of these seismic changes that have been brought on by the Internet. In reality, Canada's broadcast rules haven't changed in decades, way before the Internet ever existed, so almost nothing is the same in the world of broadcasting today as it was when these rules were drawn up. So there's no question that we need to revisit this and we need to change things. Um, it's been a pretty tense discussion around this because there's been issues about, you know, freedom of speech and all kinds of different things. Today, we're going to be talking about the rules that we're expected to play by and the ones that Internet giants, okay? We're not talking about your social media page. Internet giants have to play by. They're not the same. It's about a level playing ground. Uh, Kevin Desjardins is president of the Canadian Association of Broadcasters, so obviously very interested in this. Recently wrote a piece in uh, in the Star about what the concerns of the Canadian Association of Broadcasters are, and he joins us now to talk more about it. Kevin, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure, Shay. Thanks for having me. You know, Kevin, I know this is not why we brought you on, but I, you know, I, I, I gave my little rant there, as I always do, about the $600 million and and I get the, this text, media lies, CTV, CBC, Global are all digital. They're all bought by the left wing. Um, I mean, the, this pervasive sentiment that this is all about money won't go away. Um, but uh, let's try and focus on what we're talking about here, which is the regulatory framework and the fact that things aren't fair. I mean, there's no exaggeration to say the industry that these laws govern doesn't even exist anymore. It's changed that much w- over the course of time. Yeah, I think that you've uh, you've hit it exactly. Uh, you know, I mean, my my joke has been that uh, this is you know a blockbuster and Walkman era uh, piece of legislation at this point, and uh, and I don't think that uh, uh, any of us are are planning on um, being kind and rewinding uh, anytime soon. So, and, and and to be frank, even the the, the substantial changes that we've seen over the past uh, 10 years um, uh, since uh, Netflix arrived in Canada, um, you know, and, and as you said, these are massive, massive global streamers. Yeah. Uh, and they, you know, and, and to your point, there are a lot of rules that Canadian broadcasters uh, play by in terms of what it is that they uh, what it is that they put on the air, uh, how much they are expected to support the production of those things that they put on the air, the limitations in terms of how they can uh, own some of that intellectual property, and uh, ultimately the foreign uh, streamers have none of those rules. At all. Like when someone says to me, you know, well, how do you want to rebalance rules? I'm like, well, let's start by having at least, you know, a, a notion that they uh, need to contribute in some way to the to the Canadian broadcasting market that they are 
clearly benefiting from. Yeah, and essentially what it does is set up a, an environment where um, you've got the Canadian broadcasters operating at a deficit. It's an unfair landscape, and basically we're at a disadvantage. It's not like we're asking for any special treatment, just we just want to be able to compete on a level playing ground. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, and I think that that's uh, the important uh, thing about this is is to look at, you know, uh, because these players, you know, they are direct competitors for broadcasters. They're direct competitors in terms of subscribers, in terms of advertisers, in terms of listeners and viewers. Uh, and, you know, uh, occasionally people will say, well, this isn't really broadcasting. And, you know, my, my response is, well, you know, if it's not broadcasting, why are uh, why are Netflix or Amazon or uh, Disney Plus so eager to chase after the awards that are given in the broadcasting realm? Right. They consider themselves broadcasters. They commission and uh, put out uh, content that they want to be appealing to people and that people are watching, you know, in the same places that they uh, watch uh, watch their broadcasters now, which, you know, again, I mean, this is part of what we need to do is to recognize that, you know, people will use the term legacy broadcasters. Well, people are, are watching, you know, global and CTV and, and, uh, and uh, City and, and the other uh, channels, in a number of different ways, um, you know, this isn't a uh, legacy broadcasters versus the digital era uh, thing. It's an understanding that we're all playing in the digital era. It's just some are playing by the, um, uh, the rules that are imposed on us and some uh, are, uh, you know, have the great advantage of just being able to do whatever they want and uh, and to not contribute. Um so what's at stake here? I mean, we know that uh, for those of us that have been in this business for a while, just seeing what's happened with the fracturing of the audience, with the fracturing of the advertising world, I mean, it's been a tough slog for a long, long time. What do you think is at stake here if we don't get this right with C11? You know, I, I honestly, the thing that concerns me the most, the thing that sort of keeps me awake at night is the uh, is the news um, and the the fact that you know, there's a lot of rules and regulations around making sure that we produce dramas and comedies and that sort of thing. And, uh, and, but, uh, where I think some of the tension comes is that the amount of money that our Canadian broadcasters have to invest in their news, um, is really getting squeezed, especially as advertising and subscription levels, uh, go down. So, um, you know, that's really the, the piece that gets kind of pulled in, into a bit of a vice. I mean, they are continuing to maintain the levels of investment. And again, as you said, that's investment from these companies into uh, into news and current affairs uh, programming. And uh, in general, you know, uh, private broadcasters lose tens of millions of dollars on the news every year. So this isn't this isn't a matter of uh, of you know them. Um, this uh, it, it is a public service that they do, and it's just as some of the other revenues have gotten squeezed, it's it's harder to uh, continue to invest at the same level in that public service that uh, that they have done. And and I think just to put the punctuation on this point, 
Netflix or Amazon or Disney Plus are not going to do a dinner hour um, uh, news program from Edmonton or Calgary or Lethbridge or Medicine Hat or or what have you. So yeah, they're not sending a reporter down to town council in Medicine Hat to cover what's going on with uh, you know your sewer line or your paving of the front street, right? Right, exactly. And you know, and I think that the the value of those newsrooms and and is one thing, and also just in general. You know, private broadcasters, if anyone goes to a community event, a lot of times they've been alerted to the fact that that event is happening by, you know, the radio broadcasters, by, you know, the TV. And when they get there, there's always, you know, some sort of a community cruiser or whatnot. The radio stations are there supporting those events, those charitable events and whatnot in the community. And again, that's just the stuff that, you know, the folks who are in Hollywood and uh, Silicon Valley and New York or wherever they are uh, or Sweden, they're not going to be there to support our Canadian communities. Canada is a market for them. It's not home. So what's the answer? I mean, are we looking at bringing in a bunch of different rules and regulation on these internet broadcasters and streaming services, or is it just saying get the regulations off the whatever you want to call them, legacy, whatever the fact is? Uh, is it yeah. just? I mean, how do we even that playing field? What's the ideal situation? Yeah. So you know, I mean, it's, Bill C eleven is a first step on this, and and we know that there are there are two subsequent steps that come afterwards. You have to fix the legislation just to acknowledge the fact that those streamers are there. And that is essentially what C11 does is acknowledge their presence and, and uh, takes them into account. And then there will be uh, a couple of regulatory processes that follow. And I think in those regulatory processes that follow up on C11, that's where I think the rubber hits the road and where we start to talk about, okay, what are the what are the ways in which uh, streamers need to contribute, and how do we balance off uh, what they're contributing versus what uh, what broadcasters uh, are contributing? Um, you know, and, and to the point of where you know putting putting some additional emphasis and and acknowledgement and value on the news and uh, current affairs and frankly even the sports broadcasting that uh, Canadian broadcasters do I think that we know yeah. that audiences have a uh, have a ton of value uh, on that uh, because it is part of what uh, what makes them very Canadian and and it's uh, it's what makes it home for them so again it's it's I think it's about getting uh, the foreign players to contribute and rebalancing the obligations, both in terms of uh, expenditures and in terms of uh, uh, exhibition. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an ongoing discussion and uh, and it's a moving target. I mean, that's the interesting thing about C11. It used to be C10. Uh, they had to redo it. So, I mean, it, it's it's been a work in progress for a while and it's so important they get it right, Kevin. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I, I mean, one of the concerns that people have raised is this idea of this is going to grant additional powers to the CRTC and, and whatnot. And there's a lot of scaremongering around this, uh, uh, you know, and, and I think for us, you know, we really know how important it is for this uh, to, to, uh, to get through and to, um, to be the right version of this bill. I, I don't think that this grants powers to the CRTC that they don't already have. Frankly, what I think it does is it puts some guardrails up on those powers. Um, they have had the power to regulate the Internet for the past 10 years, and they've chosen not to do it. Now they're being told you have to do it, but here's how you do it. And I think that that's uh, so critical. And, I, and you know, and, and as 
we're evolving uh, quickly in how we uh, get our content and whatnot. I, I think it's just so critical for us to get this right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you joining us today. Uh, my pleasure, Shay. Anytime. That's Kevin Desjardins, who is the president of the Canadian Association of Broadcasters. And I'll just wrap this up by again saying, and, and I know a lot of you think that we're bought and paid for, and that's the narrative you hear in some circles and some corners. And um, it's just not true. And you need to look at why you keep hearing that and why you keep being told that, right? Um, broadcasters in Canada have never been eligible for the whatever they call it. It's actually, most people know it as the newspaper bailout, right? It's for print and for some digital subscription services. It's not for broadcasters. Never has been. Wasn't intended to be. And still, for some reason, every day, I'll hear from somebody, you know, four years later now, almost five years later, saying, oh, you're bought and paid for by uh, Trudeau. No, we're not. We never have been. But it doesn't matter. The narrative persists because it's perpetuated in some circles because we have to be seen as bought and paid for and fake. Why is that? That's the question you need to ask. Why are some outlets that you follow so invested in making you think that we're bought and paid for and we're lying to you? Why are they so committed to making that stick? Because they are and you know they are. Um, now, we didn't talk about CBC because a lot of you are upset about the CBC. CBC is government-funded. They're the public broadcaster. And believe me, if you talk to regular private broadcasters and people who've been in broadcasting for a while, they have lots of issues about CBC and their funding, too. That's a separate conversation. I'm talking about that media fund that Trudeau came up with, the $595 million. Does not qualify to chorus or CTV or City or all of those broadcasters. Just, it doesn't. Sorry, but that's the fact. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.